Hello, welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind and how it works, mental illness and mental health. I'm with Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. When people have a mental health condition or a mental illness, what do they need to do? So you can broadly divide care into two types, specialist and non-specialist. This is one way of looking at it. Non-specialist can be a GP, youth worker, talking to a friend, a welfare uh, a welfare worker. Specialist care is when we start to get into people like psychologists, psychiatrists, people who specialize in delivering mental health care. So what is the role of specialist care in helping those with mental health conditions and mental illnesses? And it's become commonly known, unfortunately, over the last few years and perhaps particularly the last few months, that there is much greater demand for specialist care than there is supply. There's a bottleneck. So how do we fix that? How smart is our mental health system? And what is the best way of ensuring that we can get to a point that we're not unfortunately at now where those who need care can get the right care and can have the best chance of getting better as fast as they can. What do we need to do? Ian, this distinction between specialist care and non-specialist care, I must say I wasn't aware that there was so much, if you like, emphasis on non-specialist care. I assume that if you had a mental health condition or a mental illness, we'll be straight to the via a GP perhaps, but straight to specialist care. Not that simple. No. And the great majority of people receive assessment and interventions if they get anything from people who do not have special expertise in the area. Mm. And that's kind of how health systems have kind of run. You know, send everyone to a GP or some primary care service and if they don't get better and it gets worse or it appears to be really bad, some small number can then progress on to specialist care. Now, if you followed this podcast series over the last two years, you'd be aware that we talk about this all the time. I'm always talking about the value of understanding what's going on, better assessment, getting interventions that work, most of which are actually quite specialised. Yeah, They're not generic. They're not befriending. They're not something your mum can tell you. They're not something... Uh, a general health worker down the road necessarily has access to. The, the analogy I like to use, I, I personally have a series of musculoskeletal and back problems. And quite often when things go wrong, I go and see a surgical friend. I go, Jeff, please do something surgical. He goes, no, Ian, I've looked at your situation. You do not <laughs> require. But I'm very confident that he's made an accurate assessment of the situation and he's sending me back to various kind of physical things. But he knows what is to be known and he's making a decision. I'm sure there's other people, including my friends, who he's gone ahead and operated on, mm. right? He's that critical assessment and then and then for a certain number, the intervention that's most likely to work for that group. Yeah. And also sending away people like me where it's not likely to work very well given the complexity of my situation. That in a lot of other areas of healthcare is taken for granted. Right, yep. Now, in the mental health field, I would have thought that we resolved this issue quite a long time ago, but I have sat, if I sound a bit angry, upset, frustrated today, I am. I've sat through a range of meetings in the last six months where people I greatly respect and people who've been through the mental health system have come to the conclusion that there is no value to be gained. I mean, there's people with lived experience, their families and others, and have concluded from what they see as the evidence, there's nothing to be gained 
by seeing a specialist. There's nothing to be gained by be receiving a specific intervention. You mean for a specialist, you mean a psychologist? Clinical a psychologist, psychiatrist, mental health nurse, somebody who really knows a lot more about the specifics. You mean someone who has a mental illness, yep. they think a psychologist or psychiatrist won't Waste help. of time. Well, Not worth funding. Well, now, why would you think that? Well, two sets of things. I mean, I can imagine some people thinking that, but not anyone who works in the health system. Two sets of things lead to those kind of conclusions. One is bad experiences. They've right. gone in and received bad care. Okay. Take, take my surgical example. I went to a doctor once and they didn't fix my cold. I went Therefore, to a surgeon. doctors are bad. Is it that sort of logic? Yep. I went to a surgeon once. He operated on my back. I had a bad outcome. My back was worse. Right. Therefore, all surgery for bad backs is bad. Well, I can, I, I can imagine some people thinking that, but not anyone who works in the health system because you'd look at evidence, obviously. You'd hope so, wouldn't you? And you hope you'd look for evidence beyond the, your own particular experience. But, oh, this yeah. is, but, but, but this is not – unfortunately, in our health system as currently organised, and this has been the case in work I've been involved with, the Human Rights Commissions and others over the last 25 years, about a third of people that go through our mental health systems – say they've had a bad experience. Not one in 10, not one in 20, but about one in three. Mm. And of their families, about one in two say that their relative had a bad experience. That's huge. But having a mental illness is a bad experience. So it's kind of hard to work out whether I was depressed, so everything was a bad experience, or, or do they mean this specific person was- They mean the experience of care. They mean the health system let mm. them down right. or did them harm. Right. They are huge numbers. I mean, if we yeah, were a commercial business or we were, some, we were doing that in breast cancer or we were doing that in diabetes, there'd be inquiries every day of the week. So we've got a problem with the quality of care that we often deliver. So I talk about it all the time on this program as if it's sort of easy and optimal and <laughs> straightforward, but people's everyday lives in our health system, it's not. Mm. I had a visitor from Norway this week. He said, so Ian, over the last 30 years you've been doing this, he's obviously a man of my age. <laughs> What's got better? Is it a lot better? I said, well, awareness has gone up. People's engagement's gone up, but if you look at the quality parameters, are we doing a better job? That's arguable. Our new and still relatively new Federal Health Minister, Mark Butler, makes the comment that he's 10 years back in the job from when he last left that job, and it looks to him as if the situation may have got worse in terms of access to best care, specialist care, essential elements of the system, that what, despite our best efforts to drive up awareness, we seem to be struggling on the other side. Okay, tell everyone, and I do, and this program does all the time, come along and get care. As if that'll be good. Now, the other side, if a lot of people, a lot of people, if one in three the people coming forward for care and half of their families say, well, actually, great, Ian, did that. It was bad. Guess what happens? People disengage. They go and tell everybody else that specialist care is bad. Hence, this leads to this, oh, well, you would have been better off in the first place <laughs> sticking with a friend or a counsellor or somebody who didn't have expertise, somebody who was just nice to you. Right. Because at least they wouldn't have hurt you and right. at least they'd be supportive. And they may... Can you give us an anonymous example of the sorts of complaints people make about getting bad care? Like what sort of thing? They waited a long time. It cost a lot of money. They were prescribed a medication that caused them lots of side effects and didn't help. They went and saw a counsellor for ages, paid $100 out of pocket 20 times. Didn't help. Didn't help. Mm. And the recommendation was keep coming back for more. Misdiagnosis, I would imagine, is up there. Wrong diagnosis. Wrong, yeah. Not just miss the mark by a little way, miss the mark by a long way. For example? The person was described as being psychotic or having a schizophrenia, and they don't have schizophrenia. The person was 
said to, you know, be badly behaved, alcoholic, they actually got bipolar disorder, like fairly obviously. Mm. They haven't been provided with the appropriate treatment. Often the person who prescribed the treatment did not even know that such a condition existed. So a lot of prescribing goes on by people who don't have a lot of expertise in the area. Huge debate at the moment in the news. We're about to have a Senate inquiry into ADHD about recognition of particular things where different groups say a condition exists or it doesn't exist. I don't believe that exists. You know, I don't believe that sort of autism exists. I don't believe that sort of bipolar disorders. Those disorders don't exist. A long-term critique. They're not really illnesses. They're just social constructions. You can pick up the New York Times list of bestsellers and New York Review of Books and you can read a book every week that tells you depression doesn't exist. Wow. It's a social construction. It's being driven by pharmaceutical companies or being driven by people like myself, but like professionals. say that. Various groups do. Oh, well, 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 we, you can get into dumbness. There is dumbness in the professions. There have been various psychological groups who say that, yeah, and we've seen this again in the last year, there's no evidence that antidepressants work, promoted by a very important international group of psychologists. There's no evidence that antidepressants right. work. This is complete true. nonsense. Now, it'd be completely nonsensical also for the medical people to say that psychological therapies don't work. But yeah. at times you hear this sort of nonsense break out. Okay. The end result is undermining the credibility of specialist care. And the easy bit to then say is, oh, good, let's not have any. Because <laughs> really, let's not even bother about it. Let's just provide more and more of two things. More and more less specialised care, more befriending, more just find awesome. a good friend. And community groups and other things do a good job of that. I'm not dishing that at all. They are very important things to have. And we should do more other things, employment support, housing support, practical support. I agree with that too. We, they are important parts of the journey, but they're not instead of. One of the things actually when the National Disability Insurance Scheme was set up, one of the bad things a number of state governments did, first in Victoria, was take money out of clinical care to put in the NDIS to rob Peter to pay Paul. Okay, we're not going to do clinical care anymore. We're going to put it all into housing and social support. Hang on a second. You need to do both. Both. Yeah. That sort of thing. And, but of course, how could they do that? Could you imagine cancer care or somebody else or somebody else did that? Oh, we closed the cancer hospital in order to provide more support to people with cancer. Yeah. You go, hang on a second. <laughs> we so need both. We need both. A personal example from another area of medicine. I had some nose thing. I couldn't breathe. Well, I could breathe, but not as well as I wanted. And so I, my GP referred me to an ear, nose and throat specialist and he had three rooms that he ran, bet you know, ran between, three patients simultaneously. So I would have been there for 45 minutes and he would have been in my presence for under 10 minutes. So 10 minutes of his time. He gave me a diagnosis, never saw him again. The GP knew exactly what to do. So if people think what you're suggesting is that everyone should spend hours with a psychiatrist because they're going to get the diagnosis right... It's not necessarily like that, is it? If you go to the top, like I went to the top quickly and then because we got the diagnosis, that person didn't have to be involved anymore at all. The GP could just kind of follow through with that. Now, James, we can get right to the end of the episode because that's exactly what should happen. Yeah. The assessment bit being sophisticated and specialised and more likely to be correct. As the it is in other areas of medicine. As it is in other areas of medicine. And the interventions may then be provided by a whole range of other people. I mean, a GP can prescribe as well as I can prescribe. <laughs> like, yeah. We can write the same scripts. We might not make the same choices, though. You know? yeah. A bunch of psychological colleagues can do psychological therapy a whole lot better than me. Mm. They can deliver it. A whole lot of mental health nurses who are some of the world's most fabulous people and physios and pharmacists and a whole lot of other people can deliver the care. I don't have to deliver all the care. But, boy, you want to be on the right track. 
for yeah. what that care is. So what really frustrates me is a lot of people are on the wrong track. They're getting a lot of care, but it's not the right care. And no one's ever actually stopped long enough to say, hang on, what is the nature of this problem? <laughs> I'll have to look up your nose. And see. I've had the same experience with all my medical problems because we'll be here for hours. But, you know, I've had exactly the same experience with heart problems, with knee problems, with back problems. You know, I'm very fortunate in the world that I'm in to access very good specialists in each of the areas. Mm. And they, I'm glad they spent 10 minutes with you. Many of the specialists I've seen have spent five with me or three, <laughs> you know, but they've been right about the problem and then have led to either the specialist intervention or no intervention or what pathway I should then be on. In mental health, we've got the pyramid, the complete other way up. And more and more, we're saying to people under the demand pressures we're under, you should sit at the bottom of that pyramid with the least specialized people because you don't really need the specialized people. You don't really need to know. But I mean, they just made up a lot of stuff. They just make up stuff. In what would be it. helpful for the specialized person to say, you don't need me? Like I went to the ear, nose and throat guy and he said, you don't need me. But my GP couldn't say that because she didn't know. Right. So the example it wasn't her area. With, my favorite neurosurgeon, Jeff, tells me, Ian, you would not benefit from me be operating on your back. But at least you know. Back to physio, <laughs> back to all those other things, out of here. By contrast, an orthopedic guy in a particular thing fixed a, my, a particular knee problem, which was an unusual one. It wasn't just osteoarthritis. The, the, everyone gets told the same thing at certain levels. Oh, well, everyone your AG and has arthritis of that particular thing. You just need to do whatever. Guess what? My knee problem was not that. The specialist saying it is or it isn't, what intervention is required or not, is a key role. As healthcare has become more sophisticated in every area, and in mental health, we are not in the 1930s anymore. We actually are 100 years on from befriending and just supporting people and just being nice. Yeah. And, and in fact, the world we're in is becoming more sophisticated and differentiates different childhood onset problems, ADHD, different sorts of trauma-related problems, different kinds of depression into, guess what? It's like the rest of medicine. It's not one big generic mental disorder thing. It's a series of different pathways where optimizing the treatment for you individually is the goal, as it is in those other areas. So what are those pathways and what should the Federal Health Minister, Mark Butler, be doing to improve things? So the problem we've created is, and due to people like myself and all my colleagues for the last 25 years, increased awareness, right? So we all talk about this now, like this podcast, which I love. We talk about it. We encourage. We provide information. And at the bottom of things, we always say, well, come along and get help. <laughs> you know? And don't stop until you get – what I'd be saying here is don't stop until you get best assessment. Now, we have not actually prioritized best assessment. Mm. There are new tools. There are new online digital tools. There are new ways of doing things. Most of the time – and you and I have argued about this, James, because you, you're a very nice person. You say, I go along to my GP and I assume my GP's got it sorted. <laughs> I'm notoriously bad at the moment and on bad terms, unfortunately, with many of my colleagues who I do greatly respect in the general practice world for saying that may not be enough, mm. right? That actually the assessment of what's going on is often more complicated and more sophisticated. Just because that's all that people have had in the past does not mean that's all that we can do now. Yeah, We've got to prioritize assessment. assessment. So assessment, you mean saying you've got an anxiety disorder, you, you have depression, can, I can mean highly personalised assessment. No, yeah. They're big rubbery categories. True. You know, depression, anxiety. Okay, so everyone gets the same CBT or everyone gets the same SSRI or whatever and we can churn through. You, know, you wouldn't need your ENT surgeon running between rooms. You could just line them up. They'd all get the same thing. One size fits all. 
They all get the first up thing. But, but de- de- as we've discussed, depression and anxiety are both illnesses that have certain defining characteristics, right? Yeah. So you want to know that's what it is and yeah. it's not something else. You want to know in your situation as best applied to you of the treatments that are available, which ones would it be good for you to do, which ones would it be a waste of time to do, and what would be the pathway then the sequence that you would then follow in trying to work out which ones would be most likely to work so for you next. How do you work that out when a GP can't? So I come and say, Ian, I'm depressed. I feel really bad. There's all these markers of depression. I've got a few of them, but most of the, the most uh, common symptom is I just feel really bad all the time. And I'm pretty anxious about some stuff too. How do you go from that general fairly self-evident diagnosis to working out what treatments are going to work for me. I hate to say this, James, but you're more complicated than that. Am I? Yep. People love hearing yep. that. I am. Uh, you are more complicated than that. You've got a lifetime trajectory of these things. You know, the piece of ages of onset, what has happened, what they've done before, yep. what nature they're on, what family history they have, what other sets of medical factors might be complicating that, what makes it more or less likely that you've got a certain cognitive style that will or will not respond to those particular things. And in fact, you've been called anxious and depression, but you're not of that type. You will not necessarily do well with cognitive therapy. You will not necessarily do well. In fact, you might do worse on SSRIs really? because you, yes, because you've got a family history. Not, I'm saying you, you, right. you the, theoretic, yeah, I understand. the theoretical, theoretical James, man. the theoretical James has a different kind of thing, has a kind of more atypical depression or has a family history of bipolar oh. disorder or has a certain other sets of medical complications, which might suggest to me that you've got other immune metabolic kind of characteristics or other, as we've discussed many times, sleep-wake cycle characteristics that actually go warning bells, warning bells. Now, these are not necessarily common, but they're well-known to people in the specialist world. You've got certain other odd ideas. You've got certain other things which are outside the usual thing. You have certain right. sort of, you know, people might say, people might say about you, James, mm. that you're a little bit obsessional. A little bit, yep. You know, on further exploration, some of those ideas might be a little bit more than just obsessional. You know, they might not just be longer-term trays. They may be very unusual ways of talking about the world. Are you one of them? Are you one of the, <laughs> are you one of the secret society running the world? So, a little you bit know, paranoid, I might be. Because of a pattern recognition thing, like all specialist practice is a pattern recognition thing of seeing things right. that other people haven't necessarily seen very often in because their life. Because you've been looking at them for 20, 30 years. Because you spend more of your life looking mm-hmm. at that particular subgroup of things in much greater detail and therefore you recognise with much greater clarity the differences within those big groups. Yep. So, yes, you've got to the right clinic. You've come to the psychiatry clinic, thank God. Your GP or somebody else has got you there or you've got there yourself somehow probably these days more by actually wanting to go there and going back to the GP and getting a referral to come there, you know, not really being filtered, just that's what Medicare requires you to do to get a payment because you want to explore further because you've listened to something like this podcast or you know someone who's got much greater clarity and, and, and you may well have also had bad experiences. You may have gone down that first path and it didn't work out well. Mm. I was doing a a radio interview recently for a, a reporter who was telling me her personal experiences of terrible uh, experience of going on antidepressants, coming off antidepressants and over a seven-year period and all the things that had happened to her. And I just, after about half an hour of this, because it was fairly distressing and I was trying to put up the argument, of course, of the benefit of certain treatments mm. and how they manage, I just went, have you ever actually seen a psychiatrist? Mm. And she went, no. Mm. I've been managed in primary care systems and on and off all these complex drug regimes and had all these complications and I've never seen anyone other than my local doctor and local psychologist. Mm. And I said, what, you're about to write this piece about how our whole area is a complete dud. <laughs> Actually, and her own personal experience 
which was really profound, yeah. from my point of view, had not been very well managed over a long period. Mm. Now, she'd had the experience of that, and she just assumed that's all there was. Right. And she assumed it was good enough. You were anxious or you are depressed. You took the anxious or depression drugs. You did the anxious or depression psychology and had all these consequences, and that was it. And that professionals were involved at just small bits along the way <laughs> and often didn't help. Mm. I was going, I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, I wish she had accessed specialist assessment a decade ago. So? Advice and been more engaged because she would have had more information herself then to act on that's out in the world but not known to her. So we know that the problem at the moment is access to specialist care, to psychologists, but particularly to psychiatrists, long, long, long waiting lists. What should federal and state governments do now to fix this problem? Well, first of all, what should the professions do? I mean, governments react to a lot of stuff. The community, well, the whole way I'm, I'm going on about this this morning, is to say to anyone who ever listens to this thing, many people require specialised assessment and then appropriate intervention. That's what we should prioritise. Mm. So go right to your federal ministers and your federal... Second, the professions need to be saying that too. The professions but what should they do to make it happen? Go change on. in work practices. So a lot of the situation for clinical psychologists and psychiatrists is that they've not only done assessments, they've then taken care of people on their own. That's created oh. part of the supply problem. So we need to change a lot of professional practice towards a much greater emphasis on assessment to get people on the right paths and then having the interventions provided, not simply by them, but by teams of people who can have expertise in the various medical and psychological aspects and social supports. But don't you think for a GP, they're saying, they're thinking to themselves, I think this person has depression. I can assess them today or I can bump them up the chain for a specialised assessment and they will spend the next two months without any treatment because the earliest appointment they can get is two months. But change the, That's change, the problem, change, but change, change the, the. You're stuck where everyone else is stuck. You're stuck mm. with the health system as it is. I'll start this and then I'll go to the GP and then there'll be a great delay. Yeah. This is the current experience. We're talking about, okay, we have got to make smarter systems. This is going to happen in the rest of Australian healthcare. I've written a lot elsewhere about the uberization of mental health and everything else. This assumption you've only got one taxi industry that's highly regulated, there's only one way of proceeding, there's only one way of funding, <laughs> has been overturned in most other industries that no longer meet the consumer demand. Mm. But again, what, what, so what should be done to change from the model we have to, to... In the model I'm proposing, not everyone would go through their GP. There are assessment systems, yeah, there are triage what... systems where you could go to the next level of assessment. Some of that assessment will be online, some of that assessment will be using the information you put in to direct you to take the next step, things you can do immediately. And that may include going to your GP and it may include going to others. It may include getting into specialised assessment. You've got to get to, you just raised an important point, you can't wait three months, six months, 12 yeah. months and do nothing. That is not a good option. But what are the first steps to change from the system we have now to the system you want? What what should happen tomorrow? Oh, if, in, in the idealised yeah. world, that, let's be clear, this isn't going to happen, but in the world that's happening, if you think about digital transformation in the rest of the world, something I'm personally engaged in a lot, and I'm part of a spin-off company that does this in Sydney University, et cetera, you can put information in. It can tell you the level of care you probably need pretty well. 
Right. You may be able to self-care. You don't go anywhere near the GP. You might be able to do a certain degree of stuff. You may need something like a GP or a, or a nurse or something at a primary care level or a physio or a pharmacist who can help you. But you may, with reasonable probability, need to see someone fairly specialised. And that's about 20% of the people who currently present need to go see a specialist now. So, so you're saying, ideally, ideally, first step instead of going to the GP, would be self-diagnosis via online tools, perhaps a specific tool run by the government. It's AI limited. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, like, you know when you're standing, you want to get an Uber and you want to go from here to there, whatever, so you put in the information about where you are, mm. it tells you how long it'll take and where you've got to go to. Right. Right? Yep. These are transparent systems. Our systems are not transparent. Mm. Yeah. And the probability of doing a particular thing. You should not sit around and wait to see a GP and then wait another six months and wait to see somebody else. You need to get somewhere. Now, in some ways... But in the youth area, when we created things like Headspace, a great Australian innovation, or we're creating new sort of hubs, we are trying to create new pathways to get people directly to some more degree of specialised assessment. But they're very small, mm. and we haven't moved the workforces. We haven't said to all the key people like myself, the psychiatrists, clinical psychologists, we need you at the front of the queue for that 20% that needs to see a specialist now mm. to get on the right pathway and not be frustrated and sent away in particular. Another 20% could probably self-care, probably doesn't need to go anywhere near a doctor. Don't wait for the GP. Do these things now. And majority of you, 70% or so, will get better doing that by engaging right now in certain kinds of activities, ones we often discuss on this but program. But it, it seems a crucial step in doing this is increasing the supply of psychologists and psychiatrists, correct? Yes. We need more of them. But we also need them perhaps even more importantly, to work differently, mm. to work at the front of the queue <laughs> for that bit of the queue that needs to see them soon, not at the back of the queue, not after everything else has failed and not to have waiting lists. You know, this is happening in cancer care and everything else. Immediately people say, no, no, hang on a second. We're not going to have six-month waiting lists for cancer care. So th does this suggest that people have to be a bit more aggressive is the wrong word, but a bit more empowered when they see their GP, if their GP says, well, let's just try this and we'll, we'll go on antidepressants and yeah, we, look, our 15 minutes is, I mean, GPs, are, you know, they do a wonderful job, most of them, but they have 15 minute slots usually. Okay, this is what I found out in 15 minutes. Let's go on antidepressants, try and do a bit more exercise, come back and see me in three weeks. Is it really up to the person to say, no, no, hang on, I want you to refer me to a psychologist. I want you to refer me to a psychologist. I would say 15 minutes is not an adequate assessment of a serious yeah. mental health problem. So you, I don't you, accept the pr uh, proposition, yeah. But what can the patient do? Can they it's say, not good enough. Please give me a... a this is a really serious thing happening in my life to my yeah. kid, my whatever else. 15 minutes to the GP. If all you're going to do is write a referral, just write the referral, okay? Let's not muck around. Yeah. Now, there are many GPs who actually are out there who've actually undertaken extensive psychological training. Mm. And they'll go spend 45 minutes or an hour or something. Good. Those people have considerably more expertise and they may know more about your life and whatever else. They're engaged in a more significant assessment. Good. I buy that. And they might, at that point, decide. Now, there's also other, many other people out there. There are actually people called pharmacists and physios and school counsellors and a whole lot of other people as well who can get involved in this, but assisted by tools that help them. What, what everyone's keeps talking about is training more people. But actually, if you put tools right. alongside people, you think about the rest of medicine. We use tests and the assessments all the time. Well, I don't say just tell me about your chest pain. I go and look at the results. If, if I've got a cold, I don't go to the doctor. And if I've hurt my elbow, I don't go to the doctor. I go to the pharmacist, actually, and say, what do you reckon? And they usually have really good advice. But are you really suggesting they can be, 
you know, part of the yes. Do that. I am really serious. Yes. Yes. In fact, we did a survey some years ago. The people that people trusted the most were pharmacists. Mm. I thought nurses were going to win. <laughs> GPs didn't win. Psychiatrists didn't win. Psychologists didn't win. Pharmacists. Are won. they trained for? Yes. Yeah. So what can they increasingly? Well, they can actually get in a dialogue with you. They may know other medications you're taking. Often what they're going to suggest actually is further assessment. Yep. You've got a really important problem. It's complicated. And, you've, and pharmacists will often know from other medications you're taking that you've got other complicated medical problems. So right. you you might have anxiety and depression, but your anxiety and depression is going to require much more careful consideration of the optimal treatment than just start this new SSRI or just mm. go and see a psychologist. Mm. You can worry, James. No, you look no, very worried. Thoughtful. I, it's, it's, you just think about yourself or one of your all kids or someone you care about <laughs> or your parents or whatever. Yeah. People ring me all the time and I go, the first thing I go, like, who have they seen? What assessment they mm. have? Oh, no, they've gone on this medication. It's just been started. They've gone on this sensory this psychologist. But, you know, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure that all those people have a full idea of what's going on. <laughs> And you go, and you often oh, I always spent fifteen minutes with this, or I did that, and that person doesn't really seem to know about this particular problem. I mean, my daughter's got this severe eating disorder, but this person seems to know about some general counselling thing and not really know mm. about that. You know, my partner's been subjected to some terribly traumatic event. The person doesn't really seem to know about that. We got really strong. Bi- oh, someone I met with just this week. We have a really strong bipolar disorder history in our family, but no one seems to be taking account of that. Mm. I'm sitting there going, oh, you know, like you know, there's so much we know. <laughs> Yeah, but it's not entering into the treatment decisions that are being made mm. by about this person. The system's saying, "Oh, we're too busy to understand what's really going on." So here, take this, take this medication, or see this psychologist. And then, if it doesn't work, let us know. I'm going. It's not good enough. It wouldn't be good enough in cancer care. It's not good enough in diabetes. It's not good enough in a lot of musculoskeletal areas. I'm saying it's not good enough in mental health. Good on you. If I'm a bit worked up about it. And, and well, something important to be worked up about. And the problems in sharing information is ridiculous. I mean, it's ridiculous that Google can know more about me than my doctor just from my history. Your doctor so, needs to know about you. Your yeah, doctor, your psychologist, your nurse, your pharmacist, without information. And they all need to know what each other know. They've got to share the information. It's all got to be about you. James, it has to be about you. Not people with anxiety in general or people with depression. It all has to be about you. Individual healthcare is about you, and then we need to have systems that are orientated around you. Hear, hear. Any questions, comments, furious rants to agree with or disagree with us? Send us an email at mindingyourmind2. That's mindingyourmind numeral two at gmail.com. The book version of Minding Your Mind, written by Ian myself, is out. And our podcast is supported by the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help's available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Google them or you can call Lifeline on 13114.